We're continuing our series that we started last week called Lies About God. And so in this message series, we are targeting some of the biggest deceptions and lies being told, not only in the culture, but also by the church. And we are combating those lies with the truth of the Word of God. Last week, we looked at the lie that Jesus is a socialist. And we unpacked that lie and saw where it came from and what the Word of God had to say about it. Today, none less in terms of maybe controversy, this is going to be a spicy message. I, the enemy fought me all week on this, so I must have, be doing something right if the devil's fighting you right. But the lie that we're talking about today lies about God. The lie is, God is gay. Before he became the front man for Nirvana, arguably the 90's biggest grunge rock band, Kurt Cobain roamed the streets of his hometown in Aberdeen, Washington. He was looking for ways to fill the void in his life. And so Cobain drifted into drug use. He battled chronic depression. He became a high school dropout. And one of his favorite ways to rebel against the establishment and to display his anger was to write graffiti on vehicles and personal property. Cobain was caught by police and spent a night in jail after he had spray-painted one of his favorite protests on a building. The protest, God is gay. That phrase, God is gay, also made its way into the lyrics of a Nirvana song, which sold millions of copies. The song was called Stay Away. We know the rest of the story, though. Tragically, in 1994, Cobain died of an apparent suicide. He was only 27 years old, and he joined the sad company of the so-called 27 Club, which included other rock stars who also died at that age. Maybe you don't know the music of Kurt Cobain, but you know the music of Sir Elton John. Uh, Previous generation, you turn on the radio, Elton John was everywhere. The world-famous British pop star provocatively said in an interview, Jesus was a compassionate, super-intelligent gay man who would have supported gay marriage. You know, it's a sad thing when the LBGT-positive message of rock stars is also the same that is coming from many churches. And we've seen the cultural shift take place over the years as The LBGT agenda has practically taken over every aspect of our society. In fact, recent Gallup polls indicate that 7% of U.S. adults self-identify as gay, making this, listen, the gayest generation on record. The LBGT agenda is in every aspect of our society, even in our public schools. In corporate settings, when you walk into Target or some other retailer, the why, the message is everywhere. The rainbow flag is flying proudly. And the sin that used to slink in the dark alleys is now paraded down Main Street. And yes, even preached in the pulpits of many churches today. Let me just show you a few headlines today. This one happened on March 22nd, 2022. Duke Divinity School students say God is queer. On March 22nd, 2022, Duke University hosted a gay pride worship service and then posted it on YouTube 
In the service, one of the female leaders opened up with a prayer calling God, quote, the queer one. She then referred to Christ as the strange one, the fabulous one, the gender fluid one, and ever becoming. I don't know where she got that from, but it wasn't the Bible that you and I hold dear. Here's another headline. Quote, United Methodist Church splits in its acceptance of LBGT rights. It turns out that the UMC is not so united anymore. In fact, 60% of United Methodist Church members say that homosexuality and gay clergy should be accepted, while the minority are holding out of their traditional view of marriage and that homosexuality is a lie. Listen to this. The article reported the UMC was the second largest Protestant denomination with 12 million worldwide members, but now the two camps within the Methodist church will diverge. And then one more headline. This one coming from Florida. Quote, so-called Christian church hosts drag show for 12-year-olds. Earlier this year, the United Church of Christ in Naples, Florida, held a youth rally in which they invited kids aged 12 to 18 to attend their gay pride conference in which kids had breakout sessions, heard LBGT speakers on inclusion and gender issues, and it was all capped off by a drag show. My, my, what have we done to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ? So the lie today, God is gay. It is a lie that I believe has spread like a cancer, not just through the culture, but into the church and has corrupted the 21st century church. And in today's message, we're going to debunk this lie. And I want to explain also in the message, how are we to respond as Bible believers? How are we to live our lives in light of this lie that is perhaps coming to a church near you? Not this church but others who have compromised on the Word of God. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What do we learn from this passage in terms of debunking this lie? Number one, I want you to see this. God condemns sexual perversion. God condemns sexual perversion. We're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Here's what the Bible says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And that term men is universal for all mankind. Okay, Nor thieves, verse 10, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's back up a little bit and get a little context for the words that we just read. If you go to the book of Acts, chapter 18... Verses 11 and 12, we read about Paul's missionary journey to the city of Corinth. He took that trip during his second round of missionary journeys. The Bible says in Acts 18 that Paul stayed in the city of Corinth for a period of 18 months or one and a half year. He was there planting a church. Now you need to know that in Corinth, it was a first century sin city. Every kind of vice, every kind of wickedness every kind of idolatry, you could find it in the city of Corinth. In fact, now I would say Asheville isn't that far off. (laughs) 
You can walk down the streets of downtown Asheville and feel a spiritual oppression. There is a darkness that has crept into our land. But Corinth was known as a sin city. In fact, they had an expression in Paul's day, living like a Corinthian. And if you said that phrase, people knew that it was code language for living a life of sinful unrestraint. John MacArthur writes this insightfully in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Notice what he says. He said, quote, In Paul's day, sexual immorality and homosexuality had been rampant in Greece and Rome for centuries. The most enlightened Greek philosophers, Socrates and Plato, were homosexual. It is a fact of history that 14 of the 15 Roman emperors were gay. Nero, who was the emperor at the time Paul wrote this letter, had a boy named Sporius castrated in order for the boy to become the emperor's quote-unquote wife. Many of the Corinthian believers had been involved in such immorality and it was hard for them to break with their old sinful ways. That is the context in which Paul is writing this challenging chapter. So as you can see, first century Corinthian culture was not that much different than 21st century American culture in terms of sexual looseness. What they felt, they did. It was a smorgasbord of the age of anything goes. And that's where we are again today. Now, you notice in verses 9 and 10 that we read, Paul gives the Corinthians a shotgun blast of reality. And he says, in so many words, Hey, Corinthians, if you don't repent of your sin, you have no hope of salvation. <laughs> that's what he says in black and white. He lists the sins and then he says, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is one of those classic Pauline passages where he goes down the list, naming their sins one by one so there is no confusion. Paul loved to make his lists. Now, as I counted this week, there are nine damning sins mentioned in these two verses. We might call them the nasty nine. And if... Your sin wasn't named, just hold on. Give Paul enough time, he'll eventually step on your toes. But three of those nine that are listed there are related to sexual sin. In fact, let's define them so that we all understand we're on the same page. He mentioned sexual immorality, a.k.a., if you're reading in the old King James, the term fornication. That is sex outside the confines of marriage. And yes, you can include porn in that. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Then we have the word adultery that is mentioned there in our text. That's sex between a married person and someone who is not their spouse. And then we have the term also mentioned there, homosexuality, or what the King James calls effeminate. This is sex with someone of the same sex. And yes, in today's society, we would also have to include under this transgenderism now the message from the Bible here is clear and convicting people whose lives are characterized by an unfettered sexual lust show no evidence of Christ transforming work in their lives and therefore Paul is saying you are in serious peril if these sins define your lifestyle in a habitual in a deliberate and a willful way you're in trouble Listen to me, I want to be so clear today. Contrary to what the liberal preachers say, 
the Bible flatly condemns all sexual sin, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Let's go back and refresh our minds. In Genesis 19, God firebombed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their rampant sexual immorality. In the Old Testament, we could read in the law that adultery and homosexuality were sins that were punishable by death. They were capital offenses. You can look it up in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22. In the New Testament, if you go to Romans 1, drop down to verse 26 through 28, Paul says that when a society accepts and endorses and embraces a homosexual lifestyle, that society, he says, has already come under the passive judgment of God and they show evidence of a quote-unquote debased mind. Is that where we are today? Absolutely. We don't know up or down, left or right, right or wrong. We make it up as we go. If we don't like the law, we'll just legislate something else. And there's, it's in total insanity when you listen to what our city councils and our lawmakers, and even in some schools, what they are teaching and what they are endorsing. A debased mind. That's where we are today. Perhaps the most graphic warning in the Bible to the sexually immoral is in Revelation 21 and verse 8. Listen to what John says there. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Preacher, I wished you wouldn't have read that. Well, we want the truth, don't we? That's what we're all about here today, truth. We're also about love and mercy, but we've got to get to the truth part first. Now, there are some tricksters who will try and find a loophole around these very clear passages that we've looked at, and they will say, well, preacher, have you thought about this? Jesus never once condemned homosexuality, and so, because Jesus didn't condemn it, you Christians shouldn't be so uptight about it. You ever heard that before? I have. Now, it's true. Jesus never once mentioned homosexuality in any of his teaching, but that argument commits a logical fallacy which is called an argument from silence. What's an argument from silence? That's where you try and make a case for something based on what the speaker or the author did not say. Now, how much evidence does that require? None. In fact, if we take this same line of reasoning... There are a lot of sins that Jesus never talked about, but which we know intuitively are wrong. For instance, Jesus never talked about kidnapping. <laughs> Does Jesus have to tell us that kidnapping is wrong in order for us to know it's a sin? No. Drug use may be another example. Jesus did not talk about the use of drugs like we see today in our fentanyl-obsessed and deadly culture. But we know that, that drug use, just because Jesus didn't talk about it, that doesn't mean we have a license to go out and do it. And moreover, Jesus affirmed the Genesis model of marriage between a man and a woman. If you go to Mark 10 and you go to Matthew 19, listen to what Jesus said. He's quoting from Genesis 1 and 2. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Somebody in the house of God, help me today. Amen. How hard is that? You are born biologically what you are. And no amount of surgery 
or mental gymnastics or argumentation can change that. And telling people they can do that is unloving because you're setting them up for horror and depression and a life of pain. Matthew 15, 19 and 20. In this passage, listen, Jesus condemned all sexual immorality. An umbrella term he uses there that encompasses everything. He says in Matthew 15, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So in a lot of these passages, I hope we have enough now to understand that we can debunk this lie. There is no way the LBGT proponents can twist the Scriptures to say that God is gay or that God endorses that lifestyle or that we should open the doors and accept that into our churches. It's, you just cannot get it from the Bible. I'm sorry. God has standards. Those standards change not. But at the same time, as we hear a message like this, it's easy to cheer on the preacher and say, yeah, preacher, you go get them. But when we have one finger pointing out to the world, remember, there's three pointing back to us. There's no way when we read a passage like this that we could feel morally superior to the homosexual if we have a porn addiction or if we're engaged in an affair or if we're sexually active before marriage. You see, if you read this passage truthfully, everybody's condemned. We all fall into those categories. And even if our pet sin isn't sexual in nature, Paul listed a lot of other things. Adultery and theft and sorcery. Hello, I'm guilty. And so are you. Listen to me. The church needs to hear this. There is a tendency in the church today to hammer down exclusively on homosexuality. When in reality... All forms of sexual perversion are equally sinful and equally destructive according to the Word of God. Do I have to give you more examples? Think of the difference between Samson and Sodom. Samson was a womanizer. I mean, read the record in Judges and look at what happened to Samson's life. A life that had so much potential, anointed by God to be the deliverer of his people. And how does his life end? As he gets into one affair after another, and there he falls asleep in the lap of Delilah. His hair is shorn, and he's blinded, and he becomes a slave of the sin that he served. And Sodom didn't make it out any better either, as they were judged harshly. For their sexual sin. So no matter where you go, no matter what flavor or what version of sexual sin you're looking for, you find it all punished and condemned by God. I like to use this illustration. Sex is like fire in the fireplace. Fire is good as long as it stays in the place where it was designed to be. In the fireplace. When there's fire there, there's warmth. There's light, there's ambiance. And if you're cooking a campfire outside, hopefully there's s'mores and hot dogs. Amen? But here's the problem. It always comes back to food with me, don't it? Here's where the problem comes in. If the fire gets outside the fireplace, it'll burn your whole house down. And the same is true with the fire of sex. God designed sex to stay in its rightful place, which is the marriage bed. And when it moves outside of that environment, it, just, it threatens to destroy 
entire lives, societies, and civilizations. That's why God is so passionate about this subject. It's not because God is a cosmic killjoy, or God wants to rain on somebody's parade, or God is a, is a malicious God looking to punish people. No, no, no. God has given us this precious gift, and if we don't steward it right, it can go from being a blessing to being a curse. You say, preacher, how did we get to this place? I'll tell you how we got to this place. It's because, I blame it on the churches. Hey, we can point our, our finger all day at the culture. They're lost. Lost people are going to do what lost people do, right? We expect a sinner to act like a sinner. The problem is not necessarily with the culture. The problem began in the church. When you had too many soft, liberal preachers who got wishy-washy and they started to compromise on the Word of God... And when they started to compromise, they opened the floodgates open to any kind of lifestyle to come in. And friend, you might as well write Ichabod across the door of the church. The glory has departed because once you start to abandon the truth of the Word of God, what left do you have to stand on? And a lot of the churches are nothing more than self-affirming, pat on the back, I love you and confirm you in your sin, but I'm never going to tell you the truth and help you how to change your life and how to repent and be the person that God wants you to be. Look at what the church has caused in American society. As we backed up, as we retreated, as we watered down God's precious word, look at what it's brought us today. Drag queen story hour. Oh my God. Where does the blame lie? in the churches that thought, well, we'll just love people and we'll just compromise on the Word of God. There's a place for love and there's a place for truth. And we're to hold both of those in balance. I'll get to the love part here in a moment. Just hang with me. But the reason why God is so serious about sexual sin is because it has the potential to destroy. Sexual sin, listen, undermines God's purpose for marriage and family which is the basic building block of civilization. When the family is gone, you no longer have a building block to build society. That's the enemy's tactic. He wants to destroy culture from inside out. And when marriage and family is destroyed, society crumbles. Think of all the damage that comes from sexual sin. There's divorce. There's broken families. There's unplanned pregnancies. There's poverty. There's single parent homes. There's depression. And yes, even suicide. See, God condemns sexual immorality not because he's a cosmic killjoy, but because he knows the destructive force that is unleashed when we do not value and protect one of his most sacred gifts. Newsflash, sex is God's idea. He came up with it. But what is the culture and what has the enemy done? They've taken hold of it, perverted it, twisted, corrupted it, and use it for evil. One of his books, David Jeremiah, makes this connection between ancient Rome and modern America. Historians tell us that when the western half of the Roman Empire fell in 476 A.D., a large factor that led to its collapse was the unraveling of the family and rampant sexual perversion. What caused Rome to fall is also causing America right now to implode. What are some of the parallels? Listen to this. High divorce rates. 
defamation of past national heroes. Remember a couple years ago when we were uh, changing all the logos and we were tearing down statues in the streets? Acceptance of alternative forms of marriage. Because now it doesn't matter. Just a piece of paper. That's what our culture says. It's not a covenant before God. Our culture doesn't understand that. Widespread attitudes of feminism, narcissism, and hedonism. We got any of that today? High inflation rates, government overspending, political corruption, and entitlement generation. If I don't like what you say, and if something you say disagrees with me, I just label you, demonize you, villainize you, and call you a racist. That's entitlement. Everybody gets the participation trophy. Common acceptance of all forms of sexual perversion was the last one. We're looking a lot like Rome. We're not that far off. Mark Hitchcock writes this in his book, The Coming Apostasy. He says, quote, Satan is the avowed enemy of traditional natural marriage and the home. Who's behind all this? It's the enemy. He said, there's no doubt that changing views on homosexual behavior is Satan's overt strategy to pervert, repurpose, and reinvent human identity. The devil's end game is to destroy every trace of conscience found in humanity. And the stunning pace with which the LBGT agenda has gained approval can only be explained, listen, in supernatural terms. He says something beyond human forces is energizing this issue and corrupting the church at warp speed. It's a spiritual battle, friends. Do we understand that? That's why we can't stop praying, we can't stop preaching, we can't stop worshiping and holding up the true and living God as He's presented in the Bible, not some idol that we've created to make us feel better about the sin that we're living in. Amen? Our culture needs to hear the message that yes, God is loving, yes, God is merciful, yes, God is full of grace and mercy, but God is a God of standards. He's a holy God. He's the standard of righteousness. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, He's a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. And if you don't repent and change your ways and turn to Jesus Christ, friend, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if our culture thinks this is outdated and oppressive. They already think that. It doesn't matter that what I'm preaching today won't meet diversity, equity, and inclusion standards. You think I care about that garbage? Why? Because I am sick at my stomach with looking out on our country and watching it fall apart every single day. In every area that you can think about. And I don't get it where some people say, Oh, you, you preachers, you just need to keep it within the church. Don't get political. Don't get controversial. Hello! My country's falling apart. We got people dying and going to hell. I can't be silent about that. Somebody's got to sound the alarm. Hey, there's a holy God that we're accountable to. And He'll send revival. He'll transform your life. He'll turn you around if you just listen. Listen to the Word of God. Don't base everything on emotion and feeling. Well, pastor, that's just so harsh. My goodness, let's get over ourselves. Let's hear what God has to say 
on the matter. Because if we don't, mama, we won't return back. Number one, God condemns all sexual perversion. So nobody's getting out looking good. Amen? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Number two, I want you to see this. God calls us to strive for purity. How are we supposed to live in light of this? God calls us to strive for purity. Now, Paul gives a three-pronged explanation for why believers should strive to live sexually pure lives. First, consider the source. Listen to what he says in verse 13. Drop down with me. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So consider Paul's first argument here is that we think about the God who made us. Not only who you are, but whose you are. You were created more than just to fulfill the lusts and the natural appetites of the flesh. Right? And when we tell our culture, oh, just do anything you want, we're not hiring the standard, we're lowering it. We're turning ourselves into animals. And God has called us to think about who we are made in the image of God. God is the source and the sustainer of life. Paul says he raised the Lord Jesus and one day he has the authority to raise you up from the dead. He's the author and finisher. Who should know better how to use these bodies so that we enjoy maximum joy, blessing, and longevity than the Creator? Right? Remember I told you this is God's idea. Sex and marriage and family. And when we follow God's guidelines for holy living, not only do we glorify Him, but we are spared from so much heartache and pain and regret. Friend, if you could walk a mile in my shoes and sit at the desk that I do with some people whose lives are broken and who have cried rivers of tears over this issue right here. Adultery, fornication, sexual immorality. And their lives have become a ruin because of it. You can spare yourself, young person. Listen to me. You don't have to do the way that the culture's doing. You can make the choice. Know how you're going to act in a situation. Don't put yourself in a difficult situation where you're going to fall. Have your mind made up before you get in a dark car with that person that's beautiful or handsome. Think about how you're going to combat those drives and those temptations. Because it's going to come. But if you consider God's plan, you will save yourself from so much pain and heartache. In their book on marriage... Walton Barb Lattimore wrote a book a few years ago called His Brain, Her Brain. Kind of a revamp of men are from Mars and women are from Venus. They reported the findings of one of the most comprehensive studies on sex done by the University of Chicago. Researchers studied thousands of cases and they discovered, listen to this, that those who were the most satisfied group were married men and women who were religious... Or attended religious gatherings regularly. Conversely, they said some of the most unhappy groups in terms of sexual satisfaction were couples who cohabitated before marriage. Listen to the statistics that they gave. Of eight couples that lived together before marriage, four of them split up and they will not marry. Of the four that marry, three of them will divorce. That's just the research. 
They, the study concluded this, that despite all the cultural myths, monogamous heterosexual marriage is still the best environment for long-term relational intimacy. And to that I say, duh, you got as far as Genesis 1 and 2. Where God set up marriage and home and family. Imagine what the University of Chicago could have done if they would just have read the first pages of the Bible. So you want to be happy? You want to have flourishing relationships and you want to be satisfied? Do it God's way! Do it God's way. Second, consider the Son. Not only consider the source, but consider the Son. Verse 15. Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you know that... He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then notice what the end of verse 12 says. You are not your own, for you were bought with a what church? Price. Paul's second argument for purity is that we remember Christ. When Christ died on the cross, He paid the price for our ransom, freeing us from the slave block of sin. Amen? And that means that we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ if you're a believer today. And that means if I belong to Jesus Christ, I don't have the freedom to live any old way I want to, nor should I desire it. I should want to honor Christ and His ultimate sacrifice. I should desire holiness and purity, not dishonor Him by living in the sin that enslaved me and the sin that caused Him to have to go to the cross. Another aspect that we have to consider here is the spiritual, emotional, and physical unity that comes from sex. Notice what Paul says here. Paul quotes from Genesis in verse 16. Let's read it again. Be very careful. He says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. And then he goes down and he says, Every sin that a person commits outside the body, but sexual immorality is a sin against his own body. Did you see that? What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, look, go back to the creation. And remember, God's original design for sex is relational intimacy and bonding on the deepest human level. It's knitting body and soul. And when someone is promiscuous, it's like this. They're giving away a piece of their soul to every single partner that they are intimate with. And pretty soon they get to the point where there's nothing left to give. Because their spirit has been joined with another in a mystical way that Paul is relating to here. And what does that lead to? It leads to brokenness. It leads to emptiness. It leads to degrading of the individual. And so when I see people who are caught in sexual sin, my reaction shouldn't be, ooh, you're so dirty. My reaction should be, oh, my goodness. Look at what the enemy has done. I should have compassion. My heart should be broken. Right? And what's so evil and deceptive about our transgender movement that we have going on right now is, listen, it promises sexual freedom and wholeness. But that's a satanic lie. 
And instead, it brings profound confusion, emptiness, and unhappiness. Walt Hayer lived for 30 years as a trans woman. Listen to this testimony. There he is as a young man. There he was as a woman. And he transitioned back. It wasn't until his late 50s that he reached utter despair and decided to return to living as a man. He said, I could no longer live the lie. And at age 56, he went with biblical marriage and he married a woman. In 2015, he started a website called sexchangeregret.com and he wrote an article called, I Was a Transgender Woman. Here's what he said in that article. He said, quote, Changing genders is short-term gain with long-term pain. Its consequences include early mortality, regret, mental illness, and suicide. I knew I wasn't a real woman no matter what my identification document said. I couldn't live the lie anymore. We need to tell our young people you cannot change the confusion of the mind by altering the shape of the body. Only a change of heart can bring lasting peace. What do they need to hear? They need to hear that, number one, God made you the way that you are and He doesn't make mistakes and that God loves you and you, your life has purpose and value and that you're not to go with every lust and desire that you feel but you're to repent and learn restraint and self-control and come to Christ and let Him change you from the inside out. That's what our children and our culture need to hear today. This has gotten so out of hand. I don't know if you saw the news report, but they are actually in some local schools. This transgender thing has gone so far that now you have children identifying as cats. And their parents are demanding at the schools that they put out litter boxes for the children to use because this is how deranged the thinking has gone. This is the woke mind virus that we must reject. This is from the devil. Lastly, Paul says this, consider the Spirit. So consider the Son, consider the Source, consider the Spirit. Verse 19 and 20, I promise you I'm going to land this plane really soon. Verse 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The third leg of Paul's Trinitarian argument points out that we should strive for sexual purity because, listen church, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people, but in the New Testament, God has a people for His temple. Let me give you an illustration. Think of it like this. How scandalous would it be if I went and got four or five kegs of beer and lined them up down here and I invited the fraternities and the biker gangs and whoever else to come in here and have a rip-snorting party. How terrible would that be if we desecrated the sanctuary where we worship with all kinds of ungodly, rebellious behavior and we graffitied on the walls and we just trashed this place. Paul says this, think about it. Your, your body... Is the abode, it's the, it's the home of the Holy Spirit. So if you wouldn't do that in a church, why would you do that to your body where the, where the Holy Spirit resides? Treat this body with respect. Treat it as made in the image of God and knowing that it's the home of the third person of the Godhead and that we're supposed to consider the Spirit. 
All right, so third is this. We've looked at number one, God condemns all sexual perversion. Number two, God calls us to strive for purity. Then number three, and I'm done, God cleanses from a sordid past. This is the love part. This is the grace part. You said, preacher, you skipped over verse 11. I know, I did it intentionally, so I keep your attention to the end. Go back to verse 11. Look at what it says there. Notice what Paul says after listing all the sins. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, amen, you were sanctified, praise God, you were justified, yes, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by who? The Spirit of God, friend, that's shouting ground right there, it makes me excited when I think about, Paul lists all the sins there, and he says, but Corinthians, remember, where you were when Christ pulled you out of the gutter of this world and cleaned you off, you're not who you used to be. You're justified. You're washed. You're cleansed. You're filled. And that's the message that God can cleanse you, friend, from a sordid past. I don't care who you've been with or how many times you've done it or how low you got. God loves you. There's grace and mercy at an old rugged cross. He still saves. He still transforms. And He'll meet you where you are in your brokenness. You say, preacher, do I have to get cleaned up? No. You come in your mess. You come in your emptiness. You come with your problems and addictions and let Jesus make the difference in your life. You see, that's why I love the Word of God. There's such balance in it. It's tough and it's tender. Right? We got the truth and then we got the love and the mercy that we needed to hear about. Our sexually unhinged culture needs to be confronted with the truth. But they also need an equal dose of love and grace and mercy. You see these folks that are so broken and so confused. What they're trying to do is fill the void in their life. And they think they can get it through a relationship or through an experience or through an operation. And that don't do it. So we need to tell them, hey, here's the truth. And here's the one who will help you point him to Jesus. The amazing offer of Christ, listen, is that nobody is so good they don't need to be saved. And no one is so bad they can't be saved. And the church should do well. Listen to me. We should focus on redemption, not condemnation. I'm not up here to judge you, to shame you, or to condemn you. I am here to love you and to tell you the truth. I love you so much that I won't compromise. I'll tell you the truth. And I'll preach to you a great and glorious Christ who loves you as you are but won't leave you as you are. He'll change you. Listen to me. God loves the homosexual. Is that not what John 3.16 says? God so loved the world. Insert your name there in the world. As I do recall in John chapter 4, Jesus reached out to the five times divorced woman at the well and she was shacking up with the next man and he loved her. The Lord has the power to set free from pornography or whatever it is that's got you enslaved today. And if you're trapped in that sexually immoral lifestyle, I'm here today to tell you it's time to repent. 
And let the Lord Jesus break those chains in your life. And call you from a sordid past to a life of beauty and redemption. And praise God, He's a second chance God. Amen. You know it because you've lived it. Finish with this. In 2016, an ISIS-inspired terrorist entered the Pulse Gay Nightclub in Orlando, Florida and shot dead 49 people. Many of you remember that. The mass killing became one of the worst shootings in U.S. history. One man who survived injuries in that tragedy was a 49-year-old man named Louise Ruiz. Louise told his testimony in a CBN interview. He said he grew up in a Christian home and he knew what the Bible said about the sin of homosexuality. But he could not repress his same-sex attractions. Isn't that what we're told? Oh, I was born this way. And now today we're told, oh, I wasn't born that way. I can be anything I want to be. As a young adult, Louise began drinking, partying, and becoming promiscuous. And when he told his parents about his gay identity, they had a major falling out. He delved fully into the gay lifestyle for 25 years until one day he had a major wake-up call. He was HIV positive. Trying to dull the pain, Louise battled alcoholism until he could no longer hold a job. He became homeless. He jumped from one bed to another just to keep a roof over his head. And then the pulse shooting happened. After he recovered, he went back out on the streets again. But he visited a church that had a homeless ministry set up in the parking lot. And they were offering free lunch one day a week. For the first time in his life, Louise understood God's love and the brokenness of his sin and his need for Jesus. For the first time in his life, Louise understood God's love and he began to turn his life around. He repented of his sin and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. He restored his relationship with his parents and he left the gay lifestyle much to their hate. He now shares his testimony and he started a ministry called Fearless Identity in which he's trying to evangelize the LBGT community. When he came to Christ, he posted his decision on Facebook and here's what he wrote. Quote, he said, That night of the shooting, I should have been number 50. I remember my struggles of perversion, heavy drinking, and having promiscuous sex that led to HIV. The enemy had his grip, but Christ has freed me. He said, I am no longer gay. Today, I know who I am in Jesus Christ. Amen. There's hope. There's transformation. There's power in the name of Jesus. So don't believe the lie. Our musicians are coming. And we're getting ready for a time of invitation. I don't know how the Lord may have dealt with you during this message. But maybe something was said that just hit you right between the eyes. And you know that you've got something you need to repent of. Our altar's open. Maybe you need Christ and for the first time in your life you need to surrender and come to Him and repent. We love to pray with you. Maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you're burdened for somebody, a prodigal or a friend or a neighbor who's lost and you don't know how to pray for them anymore. The altar is the place where you get that help. Will you stand with me today as we're going to sing Wayne Baker? Let God move in this moment. I know we've gone a little bit late, but don't, 
Don't put God in the box. Let Him move and let Him speak today. Brother Stacy, will you lead us? You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you.